Lord, we bless your name. We magnify you as King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that there is no name greater than the name of Jesus. There is no higher position than at the right hand of the Father. Thank you, Father, for the presence of the Holy Ghost this morning. I thank you that he gives us utterance to speak the things that are needful and necessary for the people to hear. But, Father, more important than even that, I thank you that he speaks the hearts of each and every one of us. Thank you, Lord, for opening the eyes of our spirits that we may see and know who we are in Christ, to know who you've made us to be, and that we might learn the truth of the word, to walk pleasing before you, to draw others to Jesus. We thank you, Father, for making it so. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We've been teaching for a number of weeks on the seven letters to the churches from Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And today we're concluding the series with the seventh church, the letter written to the Laodiceans. Now everybody knows the letter written to the Laodiceans. You may not know it by name necessarily, but you know it, uh, at least part of it, and everybody seems to. It's the church that Jesus said that he wished that they were either hot or cold, but because they were lukewarm, he would spew them out of his mouth. And as such, there's a lot of uh, thoughts and ideas and, and uh, surmisings, if you will, about the church at Laodicea, and a lot of um, doctrines have been developed about or from this letter about the church and, and what the church should be and what Jesus is saying and so forth. But really, to, to get the, uh, the, the import of what Jesus is saying, you need to know something about the background, the history, and, the, and the, uh, the condition of the city itself. So let's talk a little bit about that before we get into the message. First of all, the city of uh, Laodicea was one of three cities in the Valley of Lycus. There were three cities, what we might call tri-cities, or what are called tri-cities in one part of a country. Uh, those three cities were, uh, if uh, Laodicea is the, the central one, then 11 miles to the east is Colossae. Two letters were written to the Colossians, one that bears its name, and the other is the letter to Philemon, an individual at Colossae. So we got some information and know something about them and, and who they are and what's going on with them too. And then six miles to the north of Laodicea is the city of Hierapolis. And it's mentioned a couple of times in the scriptures as well. Now, the, uh, uh, the Lycus Valley was... Uh, a centrally located place. It was, um, well, let me, let me say this before I even go further. There were a number of other churches in the area of Asia, what we know of as Asia Minor. It's really Western Turkey in that, in that time period. And we don't know why Jesus picked out these seven alone. Why didn't he write a letter to the Colossians? Why didn't he send something to, the, to uh, Hierapolis? And, and like I said, there were other cities major cities, significant cities as well. Nobody's really got an answer for that that, uh, that we can settle on. I, I, I guess we could uh, suggest that the seven letters that he, that he did uh, uh, speak to, or the seven churches he did speak to through John, perhaps were representative of the other cities. We don't know. But uh, even so, he spoke specifically and Regarding the Laodicean letter, he spoke very specifically to them and their situation. 
Now, like I said, it's one of the three cities, Colossae, Hierapolis, and uh, Laodicea. And of the three cities, and really of the cities in that area, Hierapolis, uh, I'm sorry, Laodicea, was considered a major banking center. It was a place where they had a gold exchange. It was a very, very, very wealthy city, probably the wealthiest city of all of that uh, uh, region known as Asia. And there were other things that they were known for as well. Um, but regarding their wealth, one of the significant things that uh, might be helpful to know is that uh, this whole area was, uh, was very earthquake-prone. Throughout their histories, there were numerous major earthquakes. There was uh, a big earthquake in 17 AD that uh, all but destroyed the city of Philadelphia. We talked about that before, how that for many years and even decades afterwards, Chunks of buildings would fall off with little tremors that followed and so forth. Well, there was another one in 60 AD, which would have been about five or six years maybe after the church at Laodicea was formed or birthed. And again, we assume that it was one of the churches that was reached during the three years that Paul was in Ephesus. It's the only indication that we have that, uh, that might fit. But anyway, there was a, uh, a big earthquake in 60 AD and uh, the Roman government, all the, all the uh, cities of that area were affected greatly, and there was tremendous damage that was done. And so the Roman government sent an ambassador to each of the city's leaders that were affected and asked, how much money will you need from the Roman government to rebuild your city? And so everybody would get together, and they would calculate what it would take and, and so forth. But when they came to Laodicea, the city leaders said, tell Caesar thank you but we're very wealthy, and we have no need of his assistance. Well, you, you're going to see when we read the letter that that same attitude, that same pride has entered into the church. Another thing the city of Laodicea was known for was their textile industry. There was a, um, a specific sheep that had been um, developed over many generations for, specifically for the wool that it produced. It was a black coat, and it was called Raven Black. And in that day, if you had a, a, a wool coat that was, of course, the, the wool was uh, woven in among other fabrics and so forth. But if you had something that was raven black wool from Laodicea, you were considered to be the height of fashion. Now, another thing, Jesus speaks to that too. Another thing that the city was known for is they had a medical school. And their medical school apparently uh, focused on, or, or we don't know if it was exclusive, but at least they made a major part of their, their medical training and medical education, ophthalmology. And there was a special rock, some kind of certain rock that was uh, indigenous to Laodicea, that when ground up and made into a powder and then turned into a paste, it could be used as eye salve to strengthen or heal an eye certain eye diseases, and so forth. Jesus speaks to that as well. But the most uh, significant thing that the, the letter is known for is the lukewarm, neither hot nor cold thing. Here's what that refers to. The city of Laodicea did not have its own water supply. It was dependent on bringing water in from somewhere else. Now, Colossae was at the foot of Mount Cadmus, and most of the year it was high enough mountain where most of the year there was snow on the top of it. And so the water of Colossae was known to be the best of anything around. It's spoken of throughout history as, uh, as very, very, you know, cold, refreshing 
they were, the city was renowned for its water supply. There were also cold water springs there, and I mean, it was just paradise when it came to water. The city of Hierapolis, six miles to the north of Laodicea, was famous for their hot mineral springs. As a matter of fact, if you look at an aerial view even today, people still go there today for the medicinal purposes of the hot water springs. If you look at an aerial view, it looks like it's a snow-covered area, but it's not. It's the mineral deposits that are left on the ground as a result of the springs. Well, Laodicea, not having its own water supply, developed a city project, an aqueduct, to bring in water from Colossae. The problem was, by the time it traveled those 11 miles from Colossae to Laodicea, it was no longer cold. It was lukewarm. And so it was something that people would spit out of their mouth. The water supply in Laodicea was, was known to be lousy. There was another endeavor by some of the wealthy people there in Laodicea to bring in some of the hot springs water, pipe in some of the hot springs water from nearby Hierapolis to take advantage of some of the trade and the, the uh, uh, economy, the business that was developed or that was taking place over in Hierapolis. But by the time the hot water springs got from Hierapolis to Laodicea, it was too, too cool to do anybody any good. So that's the lukewarm. Now, let's read the, let's read the letters and see how Jesus refers to each one of these things relative to the church. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, talking about to the pastor, of course, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, folks, notice that Jesus does not begin his letter, his greetings to the church at Laodicea the same way that he did most of the other churches. He doesn't refer to himself as being the eyes with flames of fire. He doesn't refer to himself as feet of brass or anything relative to the vision that he appeared to John in. He speaks of himself in other terms, in, specifically, in specific and different terms than any of the other churches. He calls himself... First of all, the amen, so be it. In other words, what I'm telling you is the way it is. There's no argument about it. The faithful and true witness, again, relying, uh, referring to his reliability. But then the last thing, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, one of the other uh, cities, the, the city of Colossia, the church at Colossia, in the letter that Paul wrote to them, it indicates that there was a false doctrine that was present in that church that Jesus addresses here. There was a, a false doctrine that had uh, arisen in the church at Colossae that Jesus was not, he was a created being and therefore he was not God himself. And he, Paul refers to, the, um, uh, to it in a couple of ways. One of the things he says, don't let anybody beguile you or, or deceive you and rob you of your, of your reward out of, because of voluntary worship of angels. Well, the worship of angels had to do with what people said that they were doing when they were worshiping Jesus. Jesus is just an angel. He's a created being. Therefore, he can't be God. Paul addresses that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Let me read 16, 17, and 18 to you. For by him, Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Well, if everything was created by him, then he's got to be God. 
he goes further, and he is before preeminent, not only preexisting, but preeminent among all things, and by him all things consist or exist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Jesus addresses the same thing. Now, we don't know if that was a, um, a false doctrine that had held over among the years. For remember, this is about 50 years. Well, not, long, not that long. What would, what would it be? It would have been from about 60 to 93, 94, 34 years maybe. Difference between when Paul wrote the, uh, the letter to the Colossians and Jesus appears to uh, with the information that we have in Revelation chapter 3 for the Laodiceans. So we don't know if that, uh, that doctrine is held on or not, but Jesus is identifying himself as the originator of creation. So if there's any leftover doctrine like that, he addresses it first and foremost. He goes further and he says, I know thy works. He said that to all the church. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew, literally vomit, thee out of my mouth. Now, let me ask you a question. Most of us have heard and most of us have the idea that Jesus is saying, I wish you were either spiritually cold or spiritually hot. But stop and think about that for a minute. When does Jesus ever want anybody spiritually cold? I wish you were either for me or against me. When does Jesus ever want anybody against him? That's not what it means. He's saying very simply this. He's saying just like you understand the lukewarm condition of your water, the hot water from Hierapolis is warm and tepid by the time it gets to you, so it's not good for medicinal purposes like it is in the, at the source. And the cold water from Colossae is lukewarm by the time it gets there, and so it's not good for, war, for refreshing or, or uh, invigorating anyone like the waters are at the source. In other words, I consider you as Christians just as lukewarm as you consider your water. I consider you as Christians just as useless, good for nothing, as you consider the hot water from Hierapolis and the cold water from Colossae. Jesus is saying, I wish you were the hot or cold. I wish you were either useful in a medicinal way or useful in a refreshing and invigorating way like the cold water from Colossae. I wish you were something other than in the useless condition you are now. Now keep that in mind, folks, because Jesus is going to say something to this church he didn't say to anybody else. Because, verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's the same thing the city, governor said, the city government said to Caesar or the ambassador that Caesar sent about rebuilding the city. The same attitude, the same pride because of their natural wealth that the city held has crept into the church. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. 
In other words, he speaks of all the things, all the different characteristics and all the different elements of the pride of the city. He says, you're proud because you're wealthy. Folks, look at what they've done. They've mistaken financial wealth for spiritual prosperity. Those are not the same things. There are a lot in the modern day church that think they are and they're not. You don't have to be wealthy to be prosperous and you can be wealthy and be poor spiritually. But on the other hand, you can be spiritually prosperous and wealthy too. That's where the real riches of God come. Now, notice what he says. He says, I counsel you, buy of me gold tried in the fire. In other words, spiritual prosperity costs you something. John writes to the church, remember John is the very one that's receiving this letter. He writes to, to a friend of his, indicating what the will of God is for the individual. And if it's the will of God for one individual, it's the will of God for everybody. God's no respecter of persons. He said, I wish or I pray above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prosper." In other words, he says, these things should follow spiritual conditions. Financial wealth should follow your spiritual condition, not the other way around. And they should not be divorced from one another. So what, is he gonna do? what are they going to do? I counsel thee, buy, the, buy from me gold tried in the fire. What's he talking about? He's talking about treasure in heaven. He's saying, quit looking at what you have and lay up treasure in heaven. How do you do that? Well, the Bible says, Jesus said, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. Give. That you may have treasure in heaven, the Bible says. See, they were, they were focused on and concerned about what they had, not what they could use. Folks, you need to realize one of the greatest truths of spiritual prosperity is this. Money is a tool. It's just a tool. If I had a million dollars, won the lottery or something where, I, where it was known that I had a lot of money, people would ask me, what are you going to do with that money? And they're thinking about what are you going to buy for yourself. But if you want a million hammers, people are going to think, well, that's too many for anybody to have. What are you going to do with those? The hammers are only useful if you put them in the hands of somebody that can make them work. Money's only helpful if you can put it in the hands of somebody that can make it work for God. Prosperity without a purpose is greed. That's the condition of these people. They're wealthy, but they're not prosperous. So he says, I counsel thee, buy of me gold tried in the fire. Not from the gold exchange that you're famous for, that many of you do business with, but gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. And also, he says, he's counseling them to buy of him white raiment, not black, not raven black that the city is known for. Famous for. But white raiment. Now white raiment signifies purity and righteousness. What's he saying? He's saying you guys need to focus on your righteous works. Now I don't know if you, uh, if you recognize this or not. The, the reading, we haven't said anything about it. But it might do you well to, to take notice of the fact that Jesus does not say one good thing about this church. Not one. It's the only one that he doesn't. The only one that he doesn't. And there's a reason for that. Because the sin of this church is spiritual pride. Now remember the church at Sardis. He said, I know your works and you're dead. 
But this is a church in worse condition. I'll show you why. So he says, I counsel thee that you buy of me white raiment. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Here they're walking around dressed in the finest clothes of the land. They've got the designer brand of the age. And they don't know that they're naked. They don't know that they're spiritually unclothed. And the third thing that he says is that he counsels that they buy from him. I salve. Anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about spiritual eyesight. He said, you guys need to open your eyes. Open your eyes spiritually. He's not talking about the Phrygian powder that they're famous for as an eye remedy. He's talking about spiritual eye salve that the eyes of their understanding would be opened. Now, let's keep reading a little bit. Notice the next thing that he says. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, how is he rebuking and chastening these people? Folks, this is is an age-old problem that Christians have about understanding the Bible. Because so much of the church world thinks that God chastens you, which the word chasten means to discipline. So many times people think the word chasten means to punish, that God is punishing you through sickness and disease and trouble and heartache and so forth. But notice what he says. He says, I rebuke you and chasten you both in the same way. How is he rebuking and chastening them? Through his word. Through his word. Paul wrote to Timothy. It was 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, for the word of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and instruction in righteousness. Those are the words that are used for chastening in the Bible. God chastens you through his word. Notice he's giving them an opportunity to do something about it. He's not saying or else. He's saying, here's my rebuke. You guys are spiritually proud. You're spiritually poor. You're spiritually naked. And you're spiritually blind. Now do something about it. He didn't say, I'm going to do something about it. He didn't say, and because I've given you a chance, sickness shall ravage through your church people. Like a dog on the bone. He says, you do something about it. Be zealous and repent. In other words, care about the things of God once again. Apparently they had before. And repent. Turn away. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now this is a verse of scripture that we've heard and most everybody can finish it if you start it for them. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door of his heart. I will come in and sup or dine with him. Most of the time we've heard that, though, at altar calls. There are millions of people in heaven that responded to an altar call because Jesus was standing at the door and knocking. Well, that's good. I'm glad there are millions of people in heaven that got saved, but that's not what he's talking about. Notice what he says. He's talking to the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now stop and think about what that means. In other churches, Jesus talked about being in the midst of the seven stars and the seven candlesticks. This one, he's on the outside. Now, of all the problems and all the circumstances that we've seen with the other churches and even the church that was dead, 
the one that was encouraged to strengthen the few things that are left that are dying too. This is the only church Jesus is on the outside of. He's knocking on the door trying to get in. That would indicate to me that spiritual pride may be the worst of all sins. It's certainly, whether that's true or not, it's certainly something to avoid. Now, interestingly enough, it wasn't the churches that were strongest in doctrine that were lifted up in spiritual pride. It was this church who thought they had it all. Their financial condition made them think that they had it all. Folks, let me ask you a question. How often does the church follow money instead of the word? See the same thing happening today. People talk about politics. What's it about? Money, the economy. The church is famous for voting for people that they think will turn things around for them monetarily. The church is famous for choosing celebrity over character. Now, if you think I'm stepping on your candidate, <laughs> who you vote for or what you do is between you and God, just telling you what Jesus talked about. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus was invited in and allowed in other churches? I mean, it's supposed to be about him. This church is having services that are supposed to be about him. He's saying, I'm outside. I'm knocking on the door. You're going to have to change some things for me to be able to come in, but I sure wish you would. Again, he's not saying, or else. He's saying, I'm telling you these things because I love you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him, come into him, and will sup with him and he with me. One of the things that the Lord just showed me, even just this morning, that I found interesting is that there are seven different letters. He writes to the church of Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, the church in Thyatira, the church in Sardis, the church in Philadelphia, another church in somewhere, I missed one of them, and then the church of, La of the Laodiceans. The church of the Laodiceans. This church is not his, it's theirs. The only one that he makes this distinction is the church of the Laodiceans. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, not mine, the church of the Laodiceans, right. And this is the one that he says, I'm standing outside the door knocking, trying to get in. Thank God he's still trying to get in. Look at the mercy of God. He's still trying to get in. Though they've rejected him, they've chosen material things over him. They think there's something they're not and proud of what they think they are. He still loves them. You need to realize something else, folks, that there's a difference between the rebuke and the chastening, the discipline of the Lord, which always comes from the word, not through circumstances. But the, the, the chastening of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, always leaves you with hope. There's a big difference between that and the condemnation of the devil. The devil tells you you missed it so bad you can never get back on track. Because you blew it continually. That's it for you. 
God would have used you. He had a great plan for you, but you blew it. Well, I don't know that you can get in a position where you've blown it worse than these guys. But notice what Jesus says. He says, I love you, and that's why I'm chastening and rebuking you. He said, I'm standing at the door and knocking. I still want to come in and have fellowship with you. That's my desire. And we can if you'll just be zealous and repent. And then he says, to him that overcomes. To him that overcomes. And look at the blessing that he promises the overcomer. To him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne. You can still reign with me. Even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. What a beautiful letter. Not good news, but a beautiful letter. And every one of these things, this thing is filled with imagery that fits this, le- this city to a T. You're known for your wealth, but you're spiritually poor. You're known for your textiles, your clothing. You're famous for your black wool, but you're spiritually naked. You need to buy from me a white robe of righteousness. You're famous for your eyes out. You need to anoint your spiritual eyes because you're blind. But there's still hope. To him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne. You can still rule and reign with him. No matter how bad you've missed it, you can turn it around. No matter how much you failed, how many times you failed, you can still make it right. Now, of these seven churches, stop and think about Let's summarize for just a moment and think about some of the things that we learned. We saw churches that were strong in doctrine and they were commended for it, which means God likes strong doctrine. But the church at Ephesus, for example, let that strong doctrine, their position with doctrine, get in the way of their love for people. They become so doctrinally minded that they forgot about the care of the people. And God held that against them and wanted them to change that. Other churches were in the midst of persecution, tremendous persecution. And Jesus told them to hold steady, commended them for the steadiness that they had, and encouraged them to hold even steadier. And in some cases, he said, there's even more trouble coming. Other churches were completely dead, except for a few things, but even that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus didn't say to the one the church that was dead, he didn't say, well, it's too late for you. You know, I wanted to have this, send this letter to you before, but it took, took Domitian a while to get John here on the island, so I didn't get it to you in time to salvage anything. Still wasn't too late. There were churches that were strong in works, had great names for themselves, but there was no spiritual foundation for them. That was the dead church, the famous church, the big church. Small church, he had nothing to, to say to them to correct. He said, I've opened a door for you and you've kept, your, you've kept yourself strong. Notice the things that Jesus didn't say to any of the churches. He did not say to any of the churches, if only you had learned to believe me to be bigger and more wealthy. If only you learned to trust me, to put the word to work so that you could have more resources, then I could have really used you. But look at the way that we look at church today. If only we had more people. If only we had more money. If only we had a better facility. If only we had more parking. 
If only we had a better staff. If only we had this or if only we had that, then we'd really be able to do it. And Jesus never talked to anybody about, I know you need a better staff, so I'm sending you this one. I know you need a better facility, so I'm opening up this place for you over here. I know you need more people, so next Easter you'll really have a crowd. None of the things that we concern ourselves with in doing business as a church today were any of the things that Jesus referred to. Jesus gave the smallest church the biggest door of opportunity. He gave the biggest church the biggest warning about looking after their own people. He gave the most famous church a warning because they were dead. In other words, it seems that God looks at church almost exactly opposite the way that mankind does. Notice that God didn't say anything to any of the pastors that you've had your chance, you blew it, now I'm going to send you a better minister. And please realize, folks, these are churches that were started by the Apostle Paul and overseen by the Apostle John. So the idea is that we just had a better preacher, just had somebody that had a personality. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that one. If there was something about, the, about somebody that was just better, that that was never the issue with any of the churches. In fact, Jesus identified that not only was he in the middle of the churches and knew intimately, firsthand, what was going on with each one of them, he specifically said that he had the seven stars in his hand. We talked before about that means a tight, tightly held grip. Jesus cares about the local church. He doesn't seem to care about the local church the way that we do. He doesn't seem to base effectiveness on, uh, of the local church the way that man does. He doesn't seem to see things the same way. Maybe we ought to start seeing it his way. What do you think? Maybe we ought to start thanking God for what we have and use what's available to us instead of looking out into the future and thinking, well, someday, if this changes or if that corrects itself or if this comes around, then maybe we'll be able to do something else. The idea that Jesus concerns himself with a local church is something that we need to keep in mind. And folks, remember, the church is not just the congregation. The church is you. Well, that gives us an idea of what we should be warned about too, shouldn't it? Spiritual pride will hinder your personal fellowship with Jesus. If it puts Jesus on the outside of the church congregation, it'll put him on the outside of fellowship with you too. And that's the one thing that he said that he wanted. I'm standing at the door and knocking. If you'll only open, I'll come in and have fellowship with you. But their spiritual pride stopped that. Ours will too. Thank God for the knowledge of the truth that we have. But we can't ever let ourselves think that because we know it all or know a lot that we know it all. And we can't ever let, us, let ourselves get to the place that because of what we know, people are no longer important. Amen?
Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the instruction that you give us from the word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you hold the churches and the pastors in your hand. Thank you, Lord, that you're working in every local church that names the name of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would cause each and every church this seems to be too big a job for anybody to handle, Lord, and only you could do it. But I pray that you would call every pastor in every church to know the things that they need to correct. Show us what we need to correct. Reveal to me those things that are needful and necessary to shore up, to change, to cut away. Because, Lord, there's nothing more important than having you in our midst. There's nothing more important than fellowship, close fellowship with you. There's nothing we desire more than to have you walking up and down the aisles of our church in the presence of the Holy Ghost in manifestation. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for that that you've blessed us with. But Lord, do not ever let us mistake our material wealth our material blessings for real true spiritual prosperity let us keep things in proper perspective in Jesus precious name in Jesus precious name amen, amen. well I hope you've enjoyed this series I've gotten a lot out of it the Lord's really dealt with me about some things let's all stand together I know this is a big Sunday for a lot of people. So we wanted to make sure to let you beat the Baptist to the restaurant. <laughs> let me pray over you before you go. Father, I thank you for each and every one of the people that you've given to us. I thank you for their heart, for you, and for the Word of God. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes. To see what we need to correct. See what we need to do to have closer and more intimate fellowship with you. Thank you, Father, for the doors of opportunity and the doors of utterance that you've given us. Show us how to use those to our greatest effectiveness. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Father, furthermore, I ask that you would reveal to each and every person the special and unique gifts that you've placed within us that we might know how we can walk worthy of you and be pleasing in your sight. We'll correct anything, Lord. We'll change anything. We'll change everything if that's what it takes because our desire is you. We thank you leading us and guiding us by your spirit in Jesus precious name amen amen God bless you have a great day come on back and be with us tonight if you can